Well, for those of you who were with us when we last looked at the book of Joshua a few weeks ago, you will recall that we observed an encounter between Joshua and a strange soldier. And uh, when we studied that encounter, we understood that Joshua had met a temporary manifestation of God. This wasn't something that we should expect today, but it was a special provision that God had made for Joshua at that moment of great need that he had as Joshua contemplated the battle ahead, the battle to take the city of Jericho. And we saw that Joshua's response to this message was to fall down and worship his Lord. Joshua's most valuable preparation then for this great battle that lay ahead of him was to devote time to worshipping his God. And that was a useful reminder, wasn't it, to us? Even in our most hectic of lives, we should guard the times we have to commune with God, reading his word and meeting with him in prayer. But we also saw and learnt that the presence of the soldier and the instructions that Joshua, that the soldier gave to Joshua as to how the battle should be fought was a clear sign that the battle ahead wasn't Joshua's battle. It wasn't Joshua's battle at all. It was God's battle. Joshua was instructed to march his troops around the city once a day. And while there, uh, while there were the soldiers in the lead, and whilst the rest of the children of Israel made up the rear guard, these were just silent participants in the procession. It was the priests who were accompanying the Ark of the Covenant who were the main players. We read that they were to blow seven ram's horns, drawing attention to the Ark, that was being carried just behind them. The ark, which we have seen in previous weeks, was the symbol of God's presence with his people, the children of Israel. So the central feature of Joshua's battle plan was the ark of presence of God. We now come this morning to what is probably the best-known section of the book of Joshua. The story of the great walls of that city tumbling down, not through an assault of men, but through the intervention of God. It's an account, of course, which appears in many children's story Bibles and an account which has been turned into song. But it's important not to become distracted as we turn to this passage this morning. Because the walls of the city and its barred gates are not centre stage. The account that we read earlier describes how the children of Israel faithfully carried out the instructions that Joshua had received previously. They circled the city walls once a day for six days. 
Then we read in verse 15 that on the seventh day they rose early at dawn and on this day they encircled the city not once but seven times. At which point Joshua gave both the command and the assurance. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Central character then of this passage as we discovered last time, is not the city of Jericho. It's not Joshua, and it's not even the children of Israel. The central character is God himself. And so it is to God that we must centre our attention as we spend some time looking at this passage this morning. Our meditation there needs to be concentrated on God as we look at this passage. And we look at it under three headings, divine jealousy, divine justice, and then divine mercy. Divine jealousy, divine justice, and then divine mercy. Divine jealousy then, first of all, and uh, look at verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. While this section of the book of Joshua is uh, both dramatic and well-known, it's also potentially very problematic, isn't it? Perhaps when you read the account of the fall of Jericho, you find yourself feeling a bit uncomfortable. Some parts of this account are are, are truly shocking, aren't they? A command to slay every living being in the city possibly feels more akin to an evil despotic dictator or the actions of a terrorist organization than the instructions of a holy God. Well, In order to get the correct perspective on these words, we first need to note what this command was not about. Firstly, we should see that it wasn't driven by greed. There was no room given for anyone to pillage anything from the belongings of the inhabitants of Jericho. The attackers are specifically told not to take anything from the city for themselves. Only certain metal items would be to be taken from the city and these were to be applied exclusively to the Lord's service in the tabernacle. Everything else was to be burned with fire and nothing was to be taken. Secondly, we have every reason to believe that this was not an orgy of cruelty. There was to be no torture or mistreatment of prisoners. God could have applied sickness or natural disaster to destroy the people of Jericho. But he chose the sword. And without making light of these events, it is notable that the account does not describe any resistance on the part of the inhabitants. Who knows what divine intervention may have brought about a swift end to the inhabitants as they carried out their duty, as the soldiers carried out their duty. 
So having considered that it was not an act of wanton violence, we also need to understand what lay behind the command that was given to these Israelite soldiers. The concept of devoting uh, a city to destruction was conveyed first by Moses to the children of Israel, and we read about it back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 20. And there Moses sets out various principles for warfare which was to govern the children of Israel. And there in verse 16 to 18 of chapter 20 of Deuteronomy we read, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save nothing alive that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So this gives us a slightly different perspective on the events at Jericho, doesn't it? The destruction of Jericho wasn't the indiscriminate slaughter carried out by a despotic ruler. These verses make clear Jericho's continued presence would be a source of false teaching, which would then lead God's people to sin against their Lord. The instruction to raise it to the ground and eradicate its inhabitants wasn't the act of wanton carnage. The command was given out of a desire to protect God's chosen people. Those of you who are parents may empathize with this sentiment. You recognize that your children are vulnerable to unhealthy influences. Sometimes those influences can even be dangerous. And indeed, some of you who are older may to indulge, need to indulge your parents a bit longer because even after you've left home, your parents will still worry about you. And understand that this is not an idle concern on the part of the Lord for his people either. Bitter experience had shown how easily the Israelites had been influenced by their neighbours. Numbers 25 read that no sooner has the Israelites stopped on the other side of the Jordan, on the east bank, than uh, they'd begun to be led astray by the women of Moab. And by verse 2 of Numbers 25, we read, they'd invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. So you see, in Numbers 25, the experience had been that within two short verses, mere neighbours had become intimate relatives. Neighbours had become fellow worshippers of a false god. Sadly, the history of God's people is that it's littered 
with the wreckage of lives which have been led away from God through intimate friendship with unbelievers. As Israel was to settle in the land of their inheritance then, the Lord declared that he was jealous for his people and he would do all that was necessary to prevent them being led astray. So precious were his people that he would not permit them to live alongside the Canaanite. God knew all too well what the outcome would be. The Canaanites would teach them about their gods and so they would sin against the Lord. God, you see, is a jealous God. He's protective of his people. And he will not expose them to such a danger. What about us today? Do we guard our relationship with the Lord as jealously as God was guarding his relationship with his people then? Are we sensitive to the danger of over-familiarity with unbelievers? Do we live in the world or do we live comfortably as part of it? What do you delight in most? Meditating on the word of God or spending time with sinners? Now we need to be clear. At no point does the Bible instruct us to detach ourselves completely from the world around us. We're told to be light to the world. We're told to shine in the darkness. But we're also told to flee temptation, resist the devil, and have a citizenship which is in heaven. So friends, take a moment to consider what your relationship is like with the world around you. The destruction of Jericho should remind us to be jealous about our spiritual purity. And it should remind us how precious our relationship with God is. Friends, the story of the fall of Jericho should remind us that we may need to take difficult steps, even drastic steps, to ensure that we do not become entangled with the world around us. Well, that's divine jealousy as we see it in this passage. But there's also divine justice. We've seen that the destruction of Jericho and its inhabitants was motivated by the need to protect the children of Israel from being drawn away from their God. But there's another and far more fundamental reason why Jericho was destroyed. The term that we've got uh, translated in our Bibles here as devoted to destruction is the Hebrew word harem. It's first used in Exodus 22, just after the Ten Commandments had been given in chapter 20. And you remember that the first commandment given to Moses is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. 
Then in Exodus 22, verse 20, we read, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. That word, harem. Harem, or being devoted to destruction, was therefore the punishment that followed from breaking the first commandment. It was the punishment for breaking the most fundamental of God's laws. It was the result of going and following after false gods. It was the inevitable consequence of failing to worship the one true and living God, the creator and the sustainer of the world. Harem, or being devoted to destruction, is what happens to anyone who chooses to ignore the reality of who God is. It's what happens when they turn their back on him, when they set themselves up in defiance against the sovereign Lord of the universe. And this is emphasized in verse 18 of the passage that we looked at this morning. See what it says? But you keep yourselves from the devoted things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So you see, if the Israelites were to ignore the reality of God, if the Israelites were to disobey him, they wouldn't just bring judgment on themselves, they'd make the whole camp of the Israelites fit for destruction also. And indeed, we read in the next chapter in Joshua that this is precisely what happens. The children of Israel are punished because one man chose to disobey God in this regard. But that story and that episode will need to keep uh, for another time. The important thing to realize here is that being devoted to destruction in this way is not an act of spite against the Canaanites. It's a universal consequence of rebellion against God. One OPC minister, Rhett Dodson, puts it like this. When we examine all that God says here, What we discover is not some moral monster that derives sadistic pleasure from the slaughter of Jericho's citizens. The text confronts us with the Lord of heaven and earth, whose holiness is impeccable. The pastor does not present us with the the Lord versus the Canaanites, but with the Lord's holy hatred of sin. And this shouldn't surprise us, should it? The first question of our shorter catechism reads, what is the chief end of man? And what's the answer? The answer is, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why we were made. This is the very reason we exist. This isn't indulging the ego of an overinflated personality. This is recognizing God for who he is. God made us. He's the master of our universe. 
Moses declared, his majestic in his holiness, his awesome in his glorious deeds, he does wonders for us to behold. The truth is that he is worthy of our undivided praise and worship. Why? Because he is God. Friend, if we choose to defy the very reason that we exist, then we're defying the very one who has every right to expect our worship and our praise. And God's holiness demands the punishment of sin. It demands sin of rebellion, even through unbelief, should not go unpunished. But it would be irresponsible for us just to highlight God's holiness and hatred of sin from this passage without reflecting on God's patience. God had delayed the destruction of the Canaanites for 400 years because their iniquity was not yet complete. For 400 years they had heaped sin upon sin, idolatry, immorality and child sacrifice. We read of it all in the scriptures. For all that time, the Lord restrained his hand of judgment. Yet they continued to defy the living God. The Canaanites had heard of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, of their miraculous escape from Egypt. They had seen the Israelites crossing the River Jordan in the most miraculous of ways. And for six days they had seen the Ark of the God's Covenant encompassing the city. And yet still they hardened their hearts and barred the city gates. God's judgment was restrained for a season. But eventually the day of reckoning came and the city was devoted to destruction. Friends, how will you apply this to your situation? God is patient with us all. And though we all fail to fulfill that first commandment, though we all fail to glorify God and enjoy him forever, God is patient with us. And his judgment is restrained. He gives us time, doesn't he? Time to come to church. He gives us time to hear the gospel. He gives us time to appreciate how heinous our sin is before a holy God. He gives us time to repent. He gives us time to flee to Christ. But it will not be forever. It is an uncomfortable truth, but the Bible is clear that for us all there will be a day of reckoning, just as there was for the city of Jericho. So my friends, do not squander the time that God has so graciously given to you to repent and come to Christ. So if that's divine Jealousy and divine justice. We need to go on and look at verse 22 to see divine mercy. 
But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. For those of you who were with us at the time, some months ago now, you may recall that we met Rahab when we considered Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a resident of the city of Jericho, and we're told that like the others in the city, she had heard the news of what God had done for his people, the Israelites. We're told that she had heard how the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt. She had heard how they had been brought through the wilderness, and she had heard how they had defeated the opponents, their opponents, on the east side of the River Jordan. But her response to this news was unlike the other residents of the city of Jericho. Their response had been to try to shut God out of their lives. They had retreated into their fortified city and had barred the gates. Although they had heard how God graciously saved his people from the Egyptians, they resolved to have nothing to do with him and set their hearts against him. Although they had heard how the kings on the other side of the river had been powerless and had been utterly destroyed, they were determined to resist God's will and assert themselves against him. But Rahab did not respond to this news with this same defiance. Rather, we saw back in Joshua chapter 2 verse 13 that Rahab appealed to the spies to save her. This is what she said. Save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Now it's worth noting two things about this response that Rahab gave. The first is that she does not try to justify herself with the spies. You see, she was a Canaanite. She was as guilty as her neighbor of the sins that marked out the city of Jericho for destruction. And she knew it. She didn't say, well, I know the others deserve God's judgment, um, but I'm not so bad as the rest. She didn't say, I may have had a bad past when I was a prostitute, but I'm different now. And she didn't say, I know I deserve judgment, but if I hide you, then that will make up for it, won't it? No, Rahab was a Canaanite, and she recognized her sin and the impending destruction which was to befall the city. And she did not try to justify herself but she accepted the justice of the judgment that was due to her. Rather, she casts herself on God's mercy. What is mercy? Well, one preacher 
many years ago gave this example. He, he said, well, it was like uh, a, a time of tyranny and uh, a young man is hauled before the king and is told that he will die for the deeds he has done. And the young man's mother comes to the king and says, save my son's life. And the king says, why? He doesn't deserve it. And the mother says, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. And that's the point of mercy, isn't it? It's what you don't deserve that you receive from the hand of mercy. That is what Rahab was appealing to, God's mercy, appealing for something she did not deserve. The second thing we notice in Rahab's response, however, is her faith. She doesn't just cast herself on God's mercy without any expectation of how things will turn out. She turns expectantly and in faith, believing that God will indeed preserve her through the impending destruction. And we know this because in Hebrews 11, she is numbered among the gallery of the heroes of faith. In Hebrews 11.1, we're told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. She hoped to be saved, and her faith gave her assurance of that. Through the, an inner working of the Spirit of God, and she placed her hope in God, trusting in faith that he would preserve both her and her family. And this isn't what happened, for we read in this account that the two spies were sent by Joshua to her home. And they spared Rahab and her family from the destruction which was unfolding all around them. Among this uh, dark and sombre account of the devotion of Jericho to destruction, we have this cameo scene of God's grace. Rahab was a pagan who was an enemy of God's people, Israel. She deserved to die with everyone else in the city. But she did not because she was brought out by Joshua's men. And although in verse 25 it says that she is living in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho, we need to be clear that she was not saved because she saved the, the, hid the spies. James 2, 25 and 26 makes it clear that her hiding of the spies was an evidence of the faith that she already had in Israel's God. And it was a sign of her commitment to him. It was in God's sovereign grace that he chose to save her. And this is emphasized all the more when we see how she was preserved. Did you notice what the passage says in verse 23? So the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. She could not bring herself out of the destruction. 
It was Joshua, the type of Christ, who saved Rahab in the face of the Lord's judgment on Jericho. But although Rahab had saving faith in God for her preservation, and although God showed her mercy, there is a problem. You can see on the service sheet in the last psalm that we sung. In verse 8 it says, the precepts of the Lord are right. In verse 11 it says, in keeping them is great reward. Do you see the problem? What about the command that we read earlier when we considered divine justice? What did it say in Exodus 22, verse 20? God's law was very clear, wasn't it? Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. See the problem? Rahab was a Canaanite. Whatever her current faith, she had sacrificed to Canaanite gods. Under the law, she too deserved to be devoted to destruction. How was God's law to be kept while still showing mercy to Rahab? Now, Rahab didn't know the details. All she could do was put her faith in the Lord of Israel. All she could do was trust that God somehow or other would deal with it. But we know, don't we? We see clearly because we look not to Joshua, but to Joshua's antitype, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Rahab could receive mercy from God just the same way that you or I can. Rahab faced punishment for her sin, but she escaped that punishment because another paid the price. And that other was the Lord Jesus Christ. God was indeed both just, keeping his law, and the justifier, paying the price of Rahab's sin. You see, Rahab could leave Jericho because another would take her place. Friends, we can only begin to scratch at the surface when we consider Christ's sufferings on Calvary. What happened on the cross is a mystery where God's mercy to his people met the anger of divine justice. We can only begin to imagine the torment of the Lord Jesus when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But isn't this point, in a sense, in a sense, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, being devoted to destruction so that Rahab could live. Joshua didn't just bring Rahab out of Jericho, though, for he brought her into a new home. She was brought outside the camp for a period of ritual cleansing, but she was no longer an outsider. As verse 25 tells us, she lived in Israel. And indeed, as we saw last time, She went on to marry and have a family, her son being Boaz, 
an antecedent of King David himself. So you see, God in his mercy had saved Rahab from the punishment she so justly deserved. And God in his mercy brought us safely home to be part of his people. And what is true for Rahab is also true for us if we're trusting Christ this morning. God in his mercy has saved us from the punishment we so justly deserve. And God in his mercy brings us safely home to be part of his people. And because it's undeserved, and because it's all down to his mercy, it's all to the praise of his wonderful grace. Father, we bow before you this morning, mindful that you're a God of justice, you're a God of purity, you're a holy God. You're a God, O Lord, who cannot look upon evil. And we come before you this morning conscious of our great wickedness, of our deserving your divine justice of wrath being poured out upon us. But we thank you that you are not only a God of justice, but that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you do not deal with us as we deserve, but in and through your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have made a way of escape, that you have reached out and brought your people out of that destruction and brought us home to be part of your people, the people of God. Lord, when we reflect upon this, we realize that this was not achieved without any price. Your justice had to be upheld. Justice had to be done. And we thank you, O God, that uh, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his... uh, Obedience to live upon this earth a a perfect life. And we thank you that that obedience led ultimately to the cross at Calvary. That our sin might be nailed there to the tree with him. We thank the Lord that there he suffered the justice, divine justice, that should have been executed upon us. And we bless you, O Lord, that uh, through that great gift, through the immeasurable love, love of a father, that he loved his people to such an extent that he gave his only son, that whoever believeth on him should not perish. We thank you, Lord, for that great truth. And we pray, Lord, that we would cling to it, that we would delight in it, that it would give us comfort and that it would give us strength. And Lord, all these deeds have been done, not by us, we deserve nothing. And so we praise you, Lord, for the gospel, that great gift, an immeasurable gift, and we bless you for it.